I think it's a good time to start. Um, good afternoon to everyone. Welcome to our event. Um, this is uh, another Kurdish study series event um, here at the Middle East Center at the LSC. Uh, my name is Zeynep Kaya. Um, I am based, um, actually, I'm based at the Middle East Center as a, as a visiting fellow, but my main uh, institution is the University of Sheffield. I'm a lecturer there in international relations and I co-convene um, the Kurdish studies series at the LSE Middle East Center with Robert Law. Um, I'm delighted to welcome today uh, Isabel Kaiser uh, to talk about her recent book um, and I will um, introduce her to you in a, in a bit. Um, but um, before we do that, I'm just going to go through briefly some of the rules uh, for the proceedings, um, which are very simple, obviously, because in on online context, it's much easier and straightforward. Um, so the event will be for an hour, um, and our speaker, uh, Isabel, will speak for 15 minutes, and then we will use the rest of the time for question and answers from you. Um, and if you would like to ask a question, uh, please use the Q&A box, not the chat box. I will be checking the Q&A box only um, for gathering questions and then um, um, asking them to Isabel. Um, also, the event is being recorded right now and it's also being live streamed on Facebook. If you would like to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag uh, LSE Middle East. And also, um, Isabel's book is available with 20% off if you're interested in purchasing it. Um, and if you're interested in it, just uh, let us know and then we will put the discount, discount flyer in the chat box. So that's all. Um, so I'm delighted to welcome Isabel Kaiser uh, to, today uh, to our event. Uh, she's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Bern, and she's also a visiting fellow at the LSE Middle East Center. Uh, she's currently running a project um, in collaboration uh, with, with a colleague at the University of Kurdistan, Hevler. Um, the project is titled uh, The Kurdistan Region of Iraq Post-ISIS Youth, Art and Gender, which sounds really interesting and exciting. And so I'm looking forward to uh, reading um, the out, output from that project, Isabel. Um, Isabel gained her PhD at SOAS, um, University of London, and has also previously worked in journalism and diplomacy. And um, she's also reading a project right now um, uh, for the Swiss Federal Department of Foreign Affairs. And the project is about art in peace mediation. So this is, um, this is um, uh, just wanted to show you Isabel's book. This is she will be talking about her book today, which has an amazing cover. Um, the book uh, is titled "The Kurdish Women's Freedom Movement: Gender, Body Politics, and Militant Femininities." Uh, so, without taking more of the time, I'm going to hand it over to Isabel. Um, over to you, Isabel. Thank you. Thank you so much um, for this introduction, Zeynep, and hello, everybody, and thank you for being here. Um, this is the first in a series of book events that I will be doing over the coming months. But it's such a pleasure to do the launch here at the Middle East Center where I've been a visiting fellow for almost two years now. So a big thank you to Bob and Nadine and Zeynep for making this possible. I would also like to take this opportunity um, to thank my editors at Cambridge University Press and of course to my reviewers who over the past three years or so have seen this book develop in, into what it is today and with their critical inputs have made my work better. Of course, I'm also indebted to my intellectual mentors and early readers at SOAS and beyond, Nadia Ali, the late Cynthia Coburn, Cynthia Enlow, Charles Tripp, Joost Jongeld, and then Hamid Bozarslan, to name only a few. I wanted to also mention two more things before I start. Firstly, uh, I was a bit nervous at, ahead of today's talk, not because I don't like talking about my work or because I wasn't looking forward to celebrating its launch, but because I've, been re I've recently become a mother and technically I'm still on maternity leave and I'm only very slowly re-emerging from a very cozy baby bubble. So if at any point today I'm not quite as to the point as I should be, please bear with me. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention is that I'm joining you from Erbil today where the electricity frequently cuts 
So if I disappear at any moment, I will be back within a couple of minutes and maybe Zeynep, you can cover the interim program. Is that okay with you? Good. <laughs> All right. So this book is the result of a seven year journey. During those years, I did a year of research in different parts of Kurdistan and completed a PhD at SOAS on this topic. The whole exploration was inspired by the question of how women got to play such central roles in the PKK and its different armed and political branches, from women fighters to politicians and activists. Because as we saw with the start of the Rojava revolution in 2012, women were at the front lines both militarily but also politically everywhere the PKK was active. But how did they get there? And how did they make sure that their movements, that their women's structures and emancipatory projects were sustainable. 2014, when I started this research, was also the time when the first activist publications started coming out that told a rather simplified story of the women's freedom fighters and the Rojava project as well. While Western media was reproducing Orientalist stereotypes of the one exceptional women's militia fighting in an otherwise barbaric Middle East. Surely things were a bit more complicated, I thought. Everywhere I subsequently went between Eastern Turkey, Northern Syria and Northern Iraq, I was told that by my interlocutors that because women are central to the PKK's liberation ideology and because women are organized independently from men, they cannot be controlled or pushed back by them as seen in many other post-colonial liberation struggles. I was interested in how this claim of difference and sustainability works in practice how militancy is learned and performed and how this struggle is experienced by the women themselves in the everyday. These questions took me from Yarbakir to Northern Syria or Rojava, Mahmur, a PKK controlled refugee camp south of Erbil and the guerrilla mountain camps on the Iraqi Iranian border. So what I want to do today is to first speak to you briefly about the empirical part of the book and then discuss the main themes and conundrums that emerged from my research and share how my concept of militant femininities helped me grapple with these, um, with these knottier issues. All right, so in terms of how I structured the, the book, um, after a very lengthy introduction um, that situates this research conceptually and methodologically, I start the book with a historical chapter that contextualizes the Kurdish women's movement and traces the trajectory um, of its organizational structures and knowledge production from 1978 to the present. It zooms into the main internal rupture points where the women resisted and fought against their male comrades in order to build these autonomous ranks within the larger liberation movement that we see now so prominently in places like Rojava and before this large um, Turkish crackdown also in the political sphere in Eastern Turkey. Leading on from that, I examine how the claim of difference and sustainability was organized and implemented by the Kurdish women's movement in the political sphere of Diyarbakir, where the movement has a long-standing history of organizing women according to party ideology and structures. I analyze how the struggle for space unfolded once the urban war started in mid-2015, which coincided with the start of my fieldwork. I map out the tools and mechanisms of resistance used by the movement as a whole and the women's structures in particular. Uh, the next chapter, lovingly called by myself uh, the, the mountain chapter, is an account of how PKK revolutionaries are educated in the mountains, analyzing how the liberation ideology is learned and lived in the everyday by those who choose to join the armed struggle. Here, women find a language to talk about their oppression and learn about their responsibility to liberate themselves, their minds, and through an armed and political struggle, other women in the region as well. I demonstrate how this process of learning to become free is both emancipatory and coercive, arguing that while the liberation movement opens spaces for women, women can only participate in those spaces if they learn to become soldiers for the cause and embody this, um, these militant femininities that I will discuss more in a bit. Um, this ethnographic data of this chapter puts forward a more nuanced analysis of gender and agency in the context of an armed liberation movement. I then turn to the martyr mothers in Mahmur. It is um, with this, uh, this camp with its violent history is a highly militarized place where the boundaries between the armed and civil sphere are non-existent. Almost every week, someone from the camp falls at one of the many front lines in the region 
while the families in the camps and especially the mothers continue to live life according to the party's liberation ideology. I show in this chapter how the militant mothers of the camp play a crucial part in continuing not only camp life, but the struggle for freedom according to the PKK more broadly. Throughout this chapter, I discuss how mothers organize and perform rituals of mourning, remembrance, and resistance. Here, I found that the martyr culture is a key location where a sense of belonging and sacrifice, but also a vision um, and hope of a future non-state nation or this democratic confederation are negotiated. The last chapter then takes an in-depth look at body politics and sexuality and aims to do two things. First, to unpack uh, the aspect of the fighters' desexualization. As we all know, once you join the, the armed part or the armed ranks of, of the PKK, you are henceforward to abstain from uh, romantic or sexual relations. I ask, how is this part of the subjectivity produced, believed, maintained, and also policed? Are there tensions that emerge from creating a desexualized guerrilla army that comes down from the mountains to liberate society? In this chapter, I also discuss what I call party bargains. I argue that women break out of their particular social constellations by joining the party and enter a new bargain, this time with the party. I then zoom into three sides of these bargains, the fighter, the civil activist or politician, and the mother again. Whereas, as always, these categories of um, civil and, and military are overlapping. Again, I demonstrate uh, through this sexuality lens how in, um, in each case of these party bargains, um, they hold great emancipatory power and that this chosen abstinence for the guerrillas, for the, for the politicians, it's of course a different story, and can be seen as one of the main tools of women's resistance that strengthens the women's ranks. However, as always um, with, uh, with a militarized movement like that, um, this also goes hand in hand with a strict process of discipline. Finally, I ask whether this sex ban is in fact at the heart of the new gender norms and relations in the making and key to the party's ability to control its revolutionaries. Now, this just to give you an idea of what um, sites I take the reader through um, in my book. And throughout these chapters, the reader will also see me grappling with, as I mentioned, a number of conundrums and tensions that emerge from the interplay between national liberation via armed struggle via desexualization, or put into different words, how this movement, its liberation ideology and practices provide many opportunities for women, but also create new modes of control. Um, now, to make sense of these complexities, my work draws on feminist IR and critical military studies, disciplines that center the body as a site of competing powers, look at the true costs of war beyond official slogans and ideologies of liberation, and help us analyze how wars, conflicts, nationalisms, and processes of militarization are gendered. Feminist IR has famously asked, where are the women, and has sketched out the many roles women play in conflict going beyond essentialized victim of war, mother of the new soldiers, or nurse in the field hospital. Feminist scholarship has shown that while women have always played important roles in wars, both state and revolutionary wars, their wartime gains are often sidelined in post-conflict processes of reconstruction and state building, and gender inequalities actually further entrenched by conflict. The more militarized the society, the more gender-based violence, so research shows. Transnational and post-colonial feminist scholars have also shown that how nationalisms historically and cross-culturally are deeply gendered and are often referring to um, a golden past of gender equality or matriarchy, attribute essentialist qualities to women and men, so the free woman, the new man, um, adhere to a charismatic leader and in one form or another require an adherence to revolutionary chastity. Now, different from previous national liberation struggles, the specific nationalism analyzed um, in my book and, and, and therefore practiced by the, by the freedom movement is a nationalism that is tied to statelessness and occupation among dominant Arab, Turkish and Persian nationalisms. Kurds are nationalists without a state and democratic confederalism, the, the political project um, envisioned by, by the Kurdish freedom movement is a non-state liberation project centering around women's liberation, self-defense, ecology, and communal economy in order to realize the liberation of the nation. 
This is a discursive tool used over and over again by the movement itself, but proven to be true insofar as it's the women who are at the front and who are doing a large part of the political, social and military work. And I actually argue in my book that without the woman, without the women, uh, the movement would perhaps not exist or that the women are in, in essence the, the backbone of this movement. Also different from previous nationalisms in the region, women in the PKK and its sister parties no longer represent the home or the honor that needs protection from man, and neither are they expected to stay at home and reproduce the nation. Women are instead expected to get out of the house and actively participate in defending the honor of the homeland, either through a political or armed struggle. Their love is directed towards the struggle and the land um, and the leadership. Other physical and personal desires are learned to be curbed in education, as I mentioned, where they learn to obtain irade, so the will to resist and auto-control, the, the, um, the ability to self-control, to control um, uh, any bodily urges to survive the difficult circumstances in the mountains. My work shows that wherever the party holds power, women become the markers of freedom. They demarcate the boundaries between us, a gender equal society based on radical democracy, and them, the, bar the barbaric other, Daesh, the Turkish state, the Syrian regime, or the racist and capitalist world order. Importantly, as I mentioned, this is a desexualized non-state nationalism, where the nation needs to be liberated first before equal and free relationships can be had. Um, so my work, um, in part, among other things, traces this, these links between body, sexuality, and the liberation ideology, and shows how this abstinence contract is an, an important part of gaining access to a movement and its, and its ability to fight for a particular vision of a new society, and is in fact a key location through which um, the movement also controls its members. So, Clearly with the Kurdish women's freedom movement, it's never a clear cut either or case, but very much a both and. Uh, this movement complicates and confirms, but also reinvents and reproduces theories and tropes on war, gender, sexuality, and nationalism. One way that I found I could do justice to the many different lives and experiences of my respondents, but at the same time address the military uniformity and the codified behavior and performances of the women in the movement was by using this concept I crafted and called militant femininities, which aims to describe both what it means to be a militant in the movement and, one, and how one learns to obtain and perform and inhabit that identity and how ideas and practices around womanhood have shifted and have been re-envisioned and are embodied by my respondents. Militant femininities is thus a, a kind of hegemonic femininity that is envisioned and taught and learned and practiced by women, taking, of course, different shapes from woman to woman, but also from, you know, between different spaces of activism, from the mountains to the cities, um, but following the same ideological script. It is, in essence, a set of norms and practices that allows women to challenge patriarchal, statist and capitalist norms in all its shapes and forms. So this is just uh, to give you an idea of some of the knottier issues that I try to grapple with in my book or throughout my research. And they are at the same time, some of the threads that lead the reader through the book. Everyone who reads the book will see that I do not resolve any of these tensions that I mentioned by tying them up in a neat bow at the end, but instead try to show that being an engaged feminist ethnographer of women in this militarized movement does not make it imperative, either intellectually or politically, to resolve these tensions. Rather, what I had to develop was the capacity to resist these simplistic resolutions and instead develop high tolerance for contradictions, confusions, and messiness. So for the moment, I will end here, and I look forward to hearing your questions and comments. Thank you very much. Thank you, Isabel, for an excellent presentation uh, about an excellent book. I, um, we, have, we already have a couple of questions, um, but before we, we go on to them, I just wanted to say a couple of words about, about your book. Um, it won't take too long, just briefly. Uh, just, I was really impressed um, how well you um, take the reader through so many 
big major literatures um, and then synthesize them in a way that actually makes sense. And you go into the very nitty gritty of um, empirics and very fascinating empirical information. And I think um, what, what I enjoyed was uh, how you navigate us through the IR literature, IR feminist literature, um, the uh, conflict, uh, violence, um, sexuality, body politics, uh, and and bring them together in a very um, um, in a very accessible way. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed that. And and your um, observation and your the, the militant feminism and how you develop that concept, building on your, on your observations was really insightful. Um, because. I particularly enjoyed hearing your thinking and your observations and where you're coming from um, about 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 that empirical data. You know, it's just you 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 know, it, seeing your thought process was really um, interesting. So thank you for that. Um, I I have a couple of questions, but um, I will go on to the audience because I think we have only like 24, 35 minutes. So I want to use that time to um, get the information. Just as a reminder again, please put your questions into the Q&A box rather than uh, the chat box. So the first question is about uh, actually multiple questions. Uh, so let's look into it. So uh, I'll just read, from, it's by Amjad Krudnijad. Um, Many claim that the role of the women in PKKYPG is only an image. And in fact, it's not that deep and structural as presented and demonstrated. How do you approach this criticism? If I ask you how real the influence of women within the PKK movement is, how would you give me empirical and structural knowledge to support this image that women really have power in PKK? We should not forget that the main leaders of PKK and YPG still are old men. Over to you. <laughs> the hardest question at the beginning. Thank you very much. So yes, we call them the big brothers, right? Those uh, old white, they're not white. What did you say they were white? Anyway, the, the big brothers um, who hold the main power that I think is still very much true. Um, but it's also too simple to, by, by acknowledging that, negate the power that the women have or the structures that they have built over the last 40 years. So if you, I go through great, uh, length in my historical chapter to show um, how the women have fought to build these, uh, let's call them semi-autonomous um, structures by actively taking the power away from men and fighting uh, their male comrades at every step uh, to be taken seriously to show that they can um, uh, fight as hard and be as dedicated as their male comrades. Um, there was, of course, always an ongoing conversation between the women and Öcalan, who saw the women as a great power um, and, and always encouraged them to think about what kind of party they would like, what kind of parallel structures they would build. Um, and it really depends, you know, your question, uh, the answer to that question really depends who you speak to. And I found uh, that it, across or, or throughout my research that if you speak to people from the movement, they, there, there's, there's what we call an ideological veil or other anthropologists have called it a narrative curtain um, and a sort of official speech, right? Where they will, sh well, where they will tell you how, how powerful women are in the movement. Um, uh, I, I mentioned in my book that I did towards the end of my research quite a few interviews with people who left the party who will tell you quite a different story. And they will confirm what you said that um, in the powerful positions that women hold, they couldn't be there without the backing of the powerful men. Um, and so there are positions and there are structures that can be filled by women themselves uh, where men have no say whatsoever. But uh, I would say that in the important strategic security um, positions, there still the, the men still hold quite a bit of power. Who 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 of the women can um, can take on these positions? Thank you, Isabel. Um, there is a quick question about your. I guess it's about your positionality. Um, so, um, well, how would you describe yourself? Um, that's just the, the question is just to, about my positionality. Yeah, I think the, so the question is to uh, 
you know, let me read it. Please, will the author describe herself as a Muslim feminist scholar? Question mark. If not, how will she describe herself? As a Muslim herself? feminist scholar? Sorry. Would, what? would you define yourself as a Muslim feminist scholar or what, how would you define your, how would you describe yourself? That's the question. The labels. Uh, I don't put many labels. I would probably label myself as a feminist ethnographer. But in my introduction, I go again into great detail talking about uh, who I am and why I'm writing about this. Uh, and of course, critically look at, at my position as a white Swiss woman who uh, goes, goes to Kurdistan and, 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 and um, asks all these questions and then comes away with, with quite a few critical observations as well. Um, so is that enough? say I'm a feminist ethnographer um, that is in deep solidarity with the movement, but throughout the years of working on the movement also has seen um, quite a few gray zones that, that result from, from a perpetuated war and conflict. Great, thank you Isabel. Um, so we have a couple of questions about the movement itself and its feminism. Um, so. I think first let's start with this one. So it's by Abdulrahman um, Isaac. So what's the difference between the concept of gender and democracy, which is envisaged by PKK affiliated women, especially in Rojava, and the gender and democracy as defined by other by, by others in other parts of the world? So are they different? Are they similar? What's the difference? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. So gender and democracy. Well, the, the, at the heart of, of the political project that is being built and envisioned in Rojava is, is the, the cornerstone or the pillar of gender equality. Um, and another pillar is, is the radical democracy and then self-defense and ecology and communal economy, right? So we have these, um, these main pillars that hold up that new political structure. Um, and and they go hand in hand. The idea is that the nation or the people can only be free if women are free and um, if women have the same rights and have the possibility to go, um, get out of the private sphere, get out of the home and participate and become agents of this change and become active in this movement. So in that sense, um, the radical part of it is that it foresees an overhaul of the whole system. It foresees the challenging of all patriarchal structures, all um, uh, capitalist structures and, and those of the nation state and really turn the system on its head um, and, and um, establish this grassroots democracy. The idea of the women's liberation is very much tied to ecofeminism, people like Maria Mies who've um, written about it, um, that women, women's liberation is at the same time tied to an unearthing of old knowledges and a taking care of nature. Um, so that's one part of it. I would also say that there are certain liberal aspects in it that where, it's, you know, where the idea is that women's freedom is tied to um, women's independence. And as I said, being out in the, being out in the public sphere and participating actively. Um, what's certainly different and what's uh, what women in the movement have worked towards over the decades is this um, are these parallel women structures that run alongside the mixed structures and also the the system of the co-presidency so that every um, institution every party um, has has a co-leadership between a woman and a man thank you um I think another question slightly re relevant to this question is uh, from Gül Akbal. How can the progressive ideas of PKK's feminism be really transferred to the Kurdish society as a whole? And not, sorry, not related to this one. There was another question that was related to uh, this question. Um, yeah, I, I think maybe, maybe it's actually a question that I had in mind in relation to the concept of progressiveness. Um, so mm -hmm. like during your work, what how did you grapple with the concept of progress? Um, mm. It comes up a lot, a lot in discussions on gender and democracy, and you know we usually have a uh, not. I mean, there is a tendency to um, 
um, load the concept of concepts of democracy and gender with progress in a, in a way understood in the Western world. So how does progress mean? What does it mean in the context of PKK? And then also um, in relation to, I guess, uh, you've question, how are these transferred to the Kurdish society as a whole? Uh, more kind of an internal question, their relationship with the with their followers um, and how they mobilize and um, because I guess the reference here is like the Kurdish society tends to be rather patriarchal. We such a big question. Um, I don't personally speak so much about progress because I find it, I don't suggest a sort of linear, linear um, um, development when, as we know, conflict and less conflict actually goes through cycles rather than direct lines of progress. Um, I find it much more accurate or interesting to think about what spaces open for women in war or in conflict, um, how women use those spaces and, and fill those spaces, defend those spaces, and how with those um, um, efforts make these spaces sustainable perhaps or perhaps not because as i said what we see a lot is that then in a post-conflict moment these spaces disappear we see often a religious or conservative patriarchal backlash against um, women who have been engaged in armed conflict or otherwise revolu other revolutionary struggles um, so what what i paid attention to is how the movement creates these spaces in in a material sense as in you know they're party centers, their women's centers, the education centers, the, the women's houses, and what happens there? Um, who goes there? Uh, who has access there? What is being discussed? Um, so that's one thing. And, um, and the other that I found really, really interesting is how the movement tries to remove these rather patriarchal ideas of shame and honor from women's bodies. And there, um, the movement uh, makes tremendous effort to show uh, or create a different idea of womanhood, a woman that uh, that it's not um, you know, shameful to be outside and organize and politicize and demonstrate uh, that, that women and men can work together and um, um, for women to really reclaim their own bodies and see their beauty and see their agency. Um, so that's certainly something that you might link to progress um, and uh, so how, how does that really translate to society? I think it's, it's time in the end. It's armed struggle opens, as I said, spaces and opportunities and, and women have been fighting to be represented in this movement. But um, um, how that plays out in the long run, we don't know yet. But uh, what, what has happened Certainly in Rojava, I've never been there long enough to say this, but, but in, in Eastern Turkey, what has happened is that uh, women are certainly much more visible in the public sphere. They're much more, um, it's seen as honorable is also a, a word I don't like, but, uh, but for women to, to organize. And I think, um, again, there's the question of temporality because once the movement comes under such harsh scrutiny again by, by, by the Turkish state, these structures then of course disappear and, and re-emerge in a different shape and form. Great, thank you, Isabel. Um, a question from John Chalcraft. Um, thank you for this great presentation and amazing sounding research. In Gramsci, constructing alternative hegemony always involves coercion and consent. So can I ask whether these two distincts always must be presented as if in oppositional tension, tension with one another, as tension. So the second second part again, sorry. So basically he's asking whether these two distincts, coercion and consent, always must be presented as if in oppositional tension with one another, hmm. as like as tension that cannot be resolved. I don't know if I can answer that question to your satisfaction, John. <laughs> but I will say that um, that, we, that the women I spoke to, let's start there. The women I spoke to, both in the mountains and in the political sphere, 
inhabit these tensions also in their bodies. So parts of them um, join the armed struggle because they really, really want to do something for the Kurdish nation and then go through a process of uh, learning the libera uh, liberation ideology, learning this irade, um, this will to resist, learning to become these amazingly steadfast and, and, and brave freedom fighters. And but through their career as a freedom fighter, also start seeing these contradictions and start seeing things that they perhaps don't agree with. And I spoke to many people who have left the party um, who say how they've constantly battled between this consent and coercion um, and have stayed in the party perhaps because they, they were emotionally attached to it, also because many of their friends have fallen um, martyr and, um, and therefore they wanted to continue the struggle, but eventually something happens uh, that pushes them to leave. And so I think they, they do exist in the same, even in the same embodied experience um, of the women who joined the movement. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but. Thank you. Um, if John wants to further comment and ask you further, <laughs> requires further clarification, uh, he can do so in the um, Q&A. Um, there's a question about sexuality or sexual matter like, or sex. Um, is it absolutely forbidden in the PKK organization? A question from Badinan Mohammed. Yes, for the armed branches, for the, for the guerrilla cities, yes. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And that's I, part of my exploration is then also what mechanisms of coercion and policing snap into place and how is how are these boundaries around militant femininities, but also their masculine um, uh, equivalent policed and maintained. Okay, great. Um, there is a, um, there are a couple of multiple questions, so I can't, um, there is a question about ISIS. Uh, so two questions, actually. I'll just ask them together if you don't mind. Uh, so first one is by Emmanuel Didier. Um, could you comment on the contrast between, uh, contrast with the situation of ISIS women in Al-Hol camp? Um, and the second question in relation to ISIS is, um, again, by the same person, how would Western, such as Canadian, French, um, Western ISIS brides will fit in this process of liberation. So first, about the women in the whole camp, so former Daesh women. And the second? Yeah, the comment on the contrast with the situation of ISIS women in al whole camp. I guess they are asking contrast between um, the ISIS members or like yeah. members and the Kurdish fighters. Um, so yeah, they are saying yes, the ISIS women in Alhol and the ISIS brides. So okay. comparing the, I guess the Kurdish female militants with those, if I understood it correctly. Yeah. Okay. Well, yes. Okay. Uh, those are two movements that both uh, have an idea of liberation at their heart that looks uh, very, very different from each other. So that the, the PKK's idea of liberation is, as I said, the emancipation of women and, and, and women being out there fighting and working for a new non-state nation, whereas ISIS has an, a different idea around uh, purity and, and, and freedom of their women. But what is interesting to see is that both movements use, to a certain extent, women's bodies as markers for their liberation or for their political project. And we see that, or we've seen that, of course, historically and cross-culturally everywhere, that when a political power manifests itself or takes over or challenges, um, that at the heart of these um, projects is often um, as I said in my talk, this us versus them dichotomy. Our women are so-and-so liberated, our women are so-and-so educated, our women are so-and-so pious, contrary to your women. Um, and so, 
of course, you've seen these amazing images coming out as the Kurdish freedom fighters were pushing ISIS further and further back. Um, and, and, and what happened when they liberated the civilians in those places, you've seen um, Kurdish women, you know, walking towards these civilians who were at the same time taking off their black garments and hugging them and burning these black garments, women at the back of pickup trucks, taking off their black garments whilst, you know, entering the Kurdish territory. And so you can really juxtapose these two liberation ideologies and, and look at how they have gender equal, not gender equality, uh, questions around gender norms and relations at the heart of it. Uh, women in Al-Hol camp, I mean, that's an ongoing horror. Um, uh, really, really militant women there uh, who are being smuggled out, uh, leading, I mean, the, 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 the conditions in there lead to lots of conflicts within the camp. Um, uh, but I don't, I've not, I don't have any recent information about um, uh, what's happening other that, than that there's some very that there's reintegration programs that are extremely lacking. Thank you. So we have more questions about um, women's motivation in joining the Kurdish uh, movement also, or, or the military movement, but also about um, the dynamics within women in, in the PKK. Uh, but I'll just let's let's talk a little bit about um, so there are some questions that came in earlier, so I want to uh, give a voice to them. One question about the difference and similarities between the mountain and the city question by Bruce Stanley. So uh, the question is, does the city air change the nature of militant feminism and how it is practiced, which cities operate as a core ideological site for its reproduction? I guess the reproduction mm -hmm. of the ideology and the militant feminism. Militant femininities, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> not feminism, not, I mean, it's uh, not a big difference, but uh, yes, okay, so I will start by saying that more research is needed to show exactly these dynamics between the mountains and the cities and how uh, knowledge and practices travel between these sites. Um, but at the back of my book, you will find a chart where I try to map out how I think um, the movement works between the armed branches, the ideological branches, and the, the political branches. So I hope that that's helpful. Um, but what we've seen, and I trace that in, in, again in the historical chapter, is how struggle developed always simultaneously, yes, that's the chart, <laughs> um, always developed simultaneously. Um, and it's not that just everything is produced um, and fought for in the mountains and then passed down to the cities, much rather, wait one second, and someone just walked in. But that, um, right. good. Um, but that the women were actually fighting in the urban spaces, um, such as the Arbukar and other places in the 80s and the 90s, while the guerrillas were fighting in the mountains. Um, what we also had the women's resistance in the prisons. So I would say these three sites um, were mutually constitutive and that um, knowledge that was produced in, in the prisons was then produced or was then published as magazines or um, conferences that were being held in the cities uh, were also thought about in the mountains or conferences that were held in the mountains were attended by civil activists. So I think um, this is an extremely important question. It's, it's, an, it's also a relevant question because it shows us how the movement operates transnationally. And um, right now, what I find one of the most interesting locations to observe that is this concept of genealogy, which, is, which translates to women's science that was um, proposed by the women themselves in conversation with Öcalan, the leader, but then sort of proposed officially and, and brought back to the women as in like now developed this concept of genealogy by Öcalan who was in the prison. Um, the first genealogy conference was held in the mountains and has since sort of been distributed as a form of knowledge production through the cities uh, where, where the um, 
PKK or the, or the freedom movement holds power, but also in Europe. So I think that's that's an interesting dynamic to observe, to see how, um, how these knowledges travel from the mountains to the cities and increasingly so also to the European diaspora. Well, increasingly so is probably wrong because the European diaspora has always, always um, also played an important role. Great. Thank you, Isabel. We have about six questions and I think we have enough time to uh, address all of them. So the first um, question from Bedinan Mohammed about um, I mean, you extensively talk about this in your book, so you may not be able to answer this in just a couple of minutes, but what encourages women to participate? Is it Kurdish nationalism or the idea of feminism? Um, and then I can, she has another question around, you know, strategically, what would you like to achieve with your book? If you could, if you want to comment on that quickly. But as I said, we are running out of time, so. Okay, I'll be quick. Motivations, there are so many, um, and there are, uh... They range from sort of personal feelings of uh, perhaps wanting to do something for the Kurdish homeland. It's, it can be a nationalist struggle. It can be um, personal motivations of, of women's emancipation. It can be feelings of revenge. It can be results of, um, of having been subject to state violence, sexual violence, having, uh, having witnessed great tragedies or injustices that are being inflicted on Kurdish people. What I found is that being a Kurd in this geography here um, is you know, rather a continuum of violence. And, and, and I describe in my chapter, the mountain chapter, how what moves people then to actually join the armed movement is, is perhaps a culmination of rupture points on that continuum. Some people have always known that they will join when they're old enough. For other people, it's, it's, a, it's a sudden decision. Um, um, and I argue in that mountain chapter that it's, yes, it's relevant and important to ask why people join. Um, but for me, I found it more interesting to ask what happens to people once they're there? What keeps them there? Because it's one thing to go to the mountains. It's another thing to stay because life there is hard and, uh, and yeah, and the struggle is excruciatingly difficult and, and people pay an extremely high price to be there. How does the movement create meaning? How does the movement give an identity? Um, that is empowering to people or um, has this has this great emancipatory potential. Um, so, and about the strategy, I don't have a strategy for the book. Um, I hope that it um, that it tells a story that that um, centers women's own voices um, and that is is very close to their everyday lived experiences rather than um, the official ideology. That you encounter as an as an outside researcher, or taking seriously both the official ideology, but also looking at how that plays out in the everyday. I hope that students will read it. I hope that um, activists interested in the Kurdish struggle will read it, and that it will motivate people to do more research. Hopefully, building on this, maybe contradicting it, challenging it, that it is part of an ongoing conversation. Great, thank you, Isabel. Um, a question from uh, Ronya Chetinkaya. Thank you for this great presentation on this extremely important topic. Would you say that there is a hierarchy among the women in these organizations? If there is, would it depend on the age or class background of these women? And how much are the women actually involved in the peace operations on the operative level? Peace operations and operative level. Okay. Yes, so from what I gather, there are definitely hierarchies. Um, you have the obvious commander, middle officer and, and foot soldier hierarchy. And then you have the hierarchy between um, those who have been in the struggle longer and are um, seen as role models as people who have given so much to the struggle. And then um, do you have the hierarchy of people being from influential, sometimes rich families in Kurdish society, um, who perhaps also donate a lot of money to the, to the party and so on. And then you have the hierarchy of women who are closer to the men than others. So even within the Kurdish women's movement, you have more um, militant fractions and you have more, um, let's say, 
uh, what, what would be a good word? Um, less military fractions, sorry. Um, and that has a history as well. So when I, I talk about that in my history chapter, when women tried to establish their own party within the movement, they were faced with an extremely harsh backlash by the men within the movement. And, and many of the women who were pushing for this independent women's party were then imprisoned and were sidelined. And women who were less um, militant and closer to men have henceforward been filling these um, important roles and positions. And that's still the case today, I would say. Great. Um, there is a question on recruitment. So we talked about the motivations of women joining, but from a recruitment perspective, uh, Mika Niskanen says, thanks, thanks for the truly fascinating presentation. A question concerning the recruitment of women to the YPJ or other PKK affiliated groups. What are the current recruitment practices? Is forced recruit recruitment taking place? Are there differences between different areas, Syria, Southeast Turkey, Northern Iraq, um, about the way women join the organizations? Yes, okay. So I didn't specifically work on recruitment. Um, the, the women I spoke to, they all joined because either they had witnessed, as I said, tremendous state violence, they've witnessed mutilated, the mutilation of fighters' bodies, um, or they were unhappy with life in capitalist Erbil, for example, or because they grew up in Mahmoud and were from very early age on you know, part of the movement already. I spoke to people who were second generation, third generation Kurds growing up in Europe, who went to some of these PKK youth camps and joined as a result of that. I've also spoken to people who only went for education to the mountains. That's what a lot of young, uh, let's say, sympathizers do, and then ended up staying. Some people say that they didn't stay entirely uh, voluntarily, so there's also that. Um, in terms of how that happens in Rojava, uh, there's certainly a large forced recruitment was happening, but that was only for men. We, there was no forced recruitment for women, I think. Women in Rojava join again out of necessity, and they join um, because of the great role models that have been have been emerging from the wars, for example, in Shengal or in Kobani. There's always um, a, a massive educational um, effort that goes hand in hand with with the, the new structures that are built in Rojava, where cad um, uh, cadros go from house to house to educate people, but also um, women are drawn to the movement by all of these institutional um, networks that are now in place. Great, thank you. Um, a question about two questions, actually, I'll combine these two. Um, about um, by MJ Kudnujat. Um, Actually, let's go back to go to Gia Picardi's question. So can you comment something about the role of genealogy within the movement? And also, what do you think we can learn as Western feminists from the Kurdish women's movement about transnational solidarity? And then we'll follow up with the other question after this. Oh, we can learn so much from the movement in terms of transnational solidarity, because as any formerly Marxist-Leninist movement, um, it has been in contact, the PKK has been in contact with all, I would say, all um, uh, militant movements, armed liberation movements across the globe and has, has good connections with them to this day. And the women specifically have always made an effort to, be, to, to speak um, to um, other women's movements and have always been present at in large international women's conferences and so on. Um, and genealogy is certainly an attempt to, to speak to a larger audience about the women's struggle, about what the Kurdish women's movement has learned uh, in their fight against, as I, uh, against that trinity of state capitalism and patriarchy. And so, um, now you will see genealogy camps happening all across Europe, but also um, Northern, North America and Latin America, um, where these conversations and best practices are being exchanged. Yes. Great, thank you. Um, another question um, 
slightly related to this um as a european woman and the kurdish and and the scholar of Kur kurds i suppose not a you're not kurdish um what's your um idea about problematization of pkk's freedom that the freedom pkk and ypg provides for kurdish women and whether this comes at the cost of women's femininity you talked about the contrast you know the contrast and the you know oppositional processes taking place at the same time and you clarify in your book as well you do it very well how we need to move away from these constant you know oppositions and then look at the situation and um, you know, we appreciate its complexity um so i guess you maybe you could uh, comment on that quickly and then we have one final question about the um situation on the ground um, and then we'll be on time i think Okay, I'll be really quick. So um, the movement has its very own configuration of freedom and what that means. One becomes free if one struggles within uh, the structures and, and gives it her life uh, to the movement. Um, then she is already free. Um, and as I said, a very specific femininity has been recreated. Uh, and I talk, as you said, at length in my book, what that looks like. Is it at the cost of, of um, sexuality or another form of femininity? I think so, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, the women of the movement say, no, actually femininity in war is possible. It's just a different kind of femininity. Um, again, when I was speaking to people who left the party, they said, absolutely not. In war, you become cold and... Um, uh, anything that, that makes you female actually eventually uh, dies. So again, you know, there's not an either or answer. It really very much depends on who you speak to. And as you said, Sainan, I, I, I really um, emphasize this throughout my book that it's not helpful to think about these binaries of free, unfree, um, uh, revolutionary or um, reactionary, but that it's for every person an ongoing process, but it's also an ongoing process for the movement as a whole. Fantastic. Um, and one last question, by the way, someone commented on the price of your book. Uh, I, know. I know, I'm sorry, that is obviously not <laughs> in my power, yeah. but in a, a bit more than a year, the, the paperback will come out and then it's going to be much cheaper. Exactly. And but I think you can find it through your libraries or yeah. order it through your libraries. Exactly. And it will be available as an online version as well. But, you know, as with the university publishers, authors have no say about the price. And no. you know we don't even get royalties. We, also, this we get nothing. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> this we get, yes. Uh, so final question uh, by Celine. Uh, I, I hope I'm saying their name correctly. Very. If when the Syrian regime takes back the power in Rojava, what do you think will happen to the women's movement there? And then another final question just came in, if you don't mind answering that as well. How genuine is the anti-capitalist emancipatory struggle of the movement that's backed by the imperialist powers such as USA? <laughs> Over to you. Well, thank you for these questions. Uh, I don't know how to answer them. No, um, when the Syrian regime takes over, I think the SDF and the 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 powers in Rojava are already in conversation with the regime, how that would look like and how a, a, a kind of autonomy could be kept, but um, how that will play out, we don't know. And how genuine is the anti-capitalist attempt? <sighs> it always depends who's behind it and who is pushing it. And, um, you know, when, when the movement had a lot of power in places like the Arbaker, you saw a lot of cooperatives um, being active. Um, and the same is true in Rojava. Um, but of course, with any conflict landscape, uh, you also have a war economy. And um, that is certainly true for Rojava, where all sorts of things are going on that are not visible to us, that are certainly not anti-capitalist. Great, thank you so much, Isabel, for answering all the questions. Um, and thank you for your really interesting, fascinating presentations. And I'm uh, recommending reading the, this 
fantastic book to everyone. And I love, can you tell us a little bit about the picture, where, is, where it's come from? Because I think you know the person who made, made the picture. Yes. Um, uh, and now this is the moment where my brain just froze. Uh, so I will just, I will tell you why I chose it is because uh, all the books that came out after the Rojava revolution showed women with Kalashnikov smiling with beautiful hair um, somewhere at the front line, sort of perpetuating this idea of the, of the beautiful freedom fighter. And uh, I wanted to do, I wanted to, I wanted my cover to reflect um, these complexities. And I think that painting does a beautiful job at showing sort of the light and the dark and, and, the, and the pain and the anger and the determination and, 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 the, and the drive behind and, and this sort of this colorful trail behind her signifies all the women that came before her so that she can now stand there and fight for her version of, of freedom. Fascinating. Thank you, Isabel. So thank you so much for your time and thank you everyone for joining and for your questions. Um, so this event will be recorded and you can listen to it or watch it uh, afterwards if you have missed part of it or um, if you want to watch it later. Thank you. Bye everyone. Have a good afternoon. Thank you so much. <laughs>